Y'all doing all right today? How about the heat outside? Oh my word. I'm like, what's going on? If we haven't met, my name is Alan Warohio. I'm the outgoing uh, student director and uh, currently church planting resident. Oh, it's amazing. It's awesome. Today we will be in Acts 19, 11 to 20. On August 6th, the year 2014, I was at the airport in Nairobi, and I was armed with my passport and my student visa. I was going to the great state of Texas. And even though this was my first time traveling to the States, I was not scared. Maybe a little nervous, but not scared. Why? Actually, I think I was excited. Part of my excitement was the prospect of me seeing my wife, Malin, again, because she had left Kenya six weeks before me. For those of you who don't know, my wife is from Texas. We met and got married in Kenya, and then we came here for me to go to seminary. I wasn't scared because my wife would be here to meet me. She grew up in the States. She's an American. So I did not have to figure out things myself. She would be there to guide me. So 20 hours later, 20-something hours later, my wife and I were standing at the front of our first apartment in Dallas, Texas. And again, I wasn't scared to go in because my wife had paid the rent and the lease. (laughs) So I was comfortable walking in and confident that it was okay for me to be there. On August 17th, I went to school, and again, I wasn't scared as I walked into Criswell College because we had paid the first semester weeks before. All I needed to do was show up and start classes. Why am I telling you this? Why am I sharing this with you? I'm sharing this with you because there's a fear that comes with going with the gospel. When I go with the gospel, will they think I'm weird? Am I going to be accepted? What if I move across the world, across the globe, only to get sick and even die? As my wife and I are planning and praying through going back to Kenya to plant a church, we know it's going to be hard. So many things have changed. We haven't lived in Kenya for seven years. So many things have changed there. We have changed. These are real issues. But be encouraged that whether you are going to go with the gospel to proclaim it overseas to India or you're going to Australia, Somalia, or the streets of London, or maybe you're willing to stay right here in Charlotte and you're going to take the gospel to your office, to your softball game, to Noda, Eastway, or your favorite grocery store, God is with you. I wasn't afraid of, uh, of being new in the States because my wife was with me. Now you and I have something even better. We have a better assurance that God, the almighty God, who sends us to make disciples, goes with us, goes before us, and he will be with us till he comes back. So today, we will see how God goes with his people as they undertake the task of proclaiming the gospel. We will see how God demonstrates his power to confirm those who are his how he bestows an eternal identity on his children, and finally, how the bearing of fruits confirms a a movement of God in and through his people. And God does all this so that his word can spread and people can be saved. Like I said, we will be in Acts 19, 11 to 20, and our main idea for today is the gospel compels us to go 
and assures us that God is with us. Brothers and sisters, this is the confidence we have as we go with the gospel. That it compels us to go, but assures us that God is with us. If you have never given your life to Jesus, maybe you are fearful that if you give your life to Jesus, if you surrender, you will lose your friends. You have uh, this sense of freedom that you feel you will lose. Or perhaps you feel like God will not even accept you. Be encouraged today. He promises if you forsake every single thing and embrace him, he will fill you with his Holy Spirit. And not only that, he will also, he has also prepared a family for you. The people gathered right here, right now will embrace you and you will not be alone. So please don't check out. Acts 19, 11 to 20. If you're there, say, I'm there. If you're still looking for the page, say, hold up. Guys are sharp. All right. I'm going to read it, and then we are going to be in the Word. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands, so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had, all, who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the name of Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them, so that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burnt them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. That's the word of the Lord. And before we can consider it, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And we are your people. We pray, Lord, that my voice would not be the loudest, that your voice would be the loudest. Pray, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear what you have to say. You would open our mind to grasp what your spirit will teach us this morning. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to dwell in us as we listen. God, would you teach us and change our lives today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So a little bit of context here from verses 8 and 10. We learned that Paul had spent three months boldly proclaiming the gospel and reasoning and persuading the Jews in the synagogue about the kingdom of God. But some of the people, they, they became stubborn, as always. That doesn't surprise us. Every time Paul goes somewhere, people hear the gospel, and some of them are very pissed about that, and they start stoning him or something like that. And so Paul stopped going to the synagogue, and for the next two years, he was teaching and preaching about the kingdom of God at the hall of Tyrannus. And Luke tells us, because of Paul's teaching and preaching ministry in Ephesus, all the residents of Asia, both Jews and the Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. What we see here is the explosion of the early church through Paul's ministry. 
According to historians, the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, they started in this era. So Paul is working in the morning, making tents, and then between uh, 11 a.m. and 4 p.m., he is going to the hall of Tyrannus, and he is preaching about the kingdom of God. And this is what happens next. Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hand so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. The first thing we need to notice here is that it was God who was doing these miracles. It wasn't Paul. Paul was busy making tents. And he was busy preaching and teaching about the word of the Lord. And God decided to confirm the validity of his message. And throughout the book of Acts, we see God using miracles to open the, the, the ears of people to hear the gospel. And to usher in the kingdom. I just finished listening to this book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by the late Nabil Qureshi. And Nabil grew up a Muslim. And he became a Christian because his friend David shared the gospel with him consistently and patiently. And hear this, the Lord also gave Nabil dreams that led him to Jesus. The Lord is still doing miracles today. There are so many other stories like Nabil's here today. So as you plan to go with the gospel, you need to be prepared to recognize what the Lord is doing to bring people into his fold. God is still doing miracles. The second thing worth noting is... These were not normal miracles. I don't know how you qualify a normal miracle. Like, what's a normal miracle? Luke, tell us. But the author of Acts tells us these were extraordinary miracles. How extraordinary, do you ask? They were so remarkable that even face cloths or aprons that had touched Paul's skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them. And even evil spirits came out of them. Clearly, there was no COVID in Ephesus because no one is touching your handkerchief or apron today. That's not happening. It is important to be clear here that Paul was not the power behind these miracles. He was not powerful, but he was empowered. The Holy Spirit of God was using Paul as an instrument to showcase his power. The Ephesians were doubling in the works of magic, but God was showing them clearly that he was way powerful than any magic. And they needed to believe the message of the gospel that Paul was preaching. This leads us to our first point. We, like Paul, we are not powerful, but we, brothers and sisters, are empowered. Listen to what Jesus says in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, the same power that turned Paul from a persecutor to a proclaimer of the gospel goes with us. The same power that called Lazarus out of the grave goes with us. The same power that took Jesus from the tomb goes with us. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged as you go with the gospel. The power of the Lord goes with you. Make no mistake though. Make no mistake. If our faith becomes cultural, tame, convenient, it will be powerless. 
Paul, writing on later on to the church in Ephesus, said he reminded them that before they had responded to the gospel message, they were dead in their trespasses and sins. They were walking according to the ways of the world, according to the spirit of disobedience. They were carrying on the inclination of their heart. And because of that, at that point before the gospel, they were under the wrath of God. And this is so true of us today. Before Jesus, I was under the wrath of God. Before Jesus, I enjoyed sin of this world and walked according to the ways of the world. You too, before Jesus... You carried out the inclinations of your heart. The reality of, of the many people in our city is they are walking in darkness and only one person can free them, and that person is Jesus. And the Lord has empowered us with the gospel, which is the power unto salvation, and he has empowered us with the Holy Spirit so we can go proclaim salvation to those who are far and to those who are near. And how gracious of the Lord to invite us in so that we can take the gospel to the lost. You are empowered to keep sharing the gospel with your one. Remember your one? The one who's closest to you but far from God? You are empowered to continue sharing the gospel with them. Look at verse 13. Now, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying... I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. Exorcism was a thriving business in Ephesus. And Jewish exorcists, they would move from one town to the next, offering their services. By the way, if this is new, exorcism is the practice of commanding a demon or spirit to come out of a person, okay? The most powerful exorcists were thought to be the ones who had access to the most powerful name or the most powerful spirit. I know this sounds so crazy to us right now. It sounds like it's from a horror movie, right? Exorcism? What are you talking about? There are two errors we as believers can fall into. One is to disbelieve the existence of demons and forces of evil. And the other is to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. This is what C.S. Lewis said about it. He said, the devil is equally pleased by both errors, and he will take a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Paul in Ephesians says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. As we go with the gospel... We need to have our eyes, our eyes wide open because the enemy is causing all kinds of chaos around us. There are people who are trapped in all kinds of spiritual, spiritual oppression, and instead of seeking Jesus, they are seeking temporary solutions, or worse, they are falling prey to false teachers who have a pseudo-gospel and who treat Jesus as a means to an end. Luke, the author of Acts, now introduces us to the seven sons of Sceva. Don't these guys sound like a rock band? <laughs> the, the Seven Sons of Sceva. Exorcism, the album, or something. <laughs> Everyone in town must have been talking about this man called Paul. He was using the name of Jesus to drive out demons. And these brothers decided they too wanted that power. 
And so their next, the next time someone called them in for an exorcism, this is so weird. Like, how do you call someone for an exorcism? They didn't have a phone. So I don't know, they sent someone on a horse or, or a mule. Uh, go get the seven sons of Skiva. Tell them we have an exorcism project for them. It's so weird. So <laughs> the next time someone called them to perform an exorcism, they decided they knew it was time to try the new method. And what was the new method? Their strategy was to copy Paul's method by saying to the demons, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches, come out. Can you feel the tension right there? Is it going to work? Have they cracked the code? They must have been thinking, we are going to be so famous right now. We're going to trend. Look at verse 15. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul. Wait for it. But who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them, so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid, and the name of the Lord was held in high esteem. Talk about a beatdown. When preaching on this text, Mark Chandler said, if you go into a fight fully dressed, and you come out of there naked, <laughs> we, we don't need to ask who won the fight. We all know. The demons knew Jesus. There's so many instances in Scripture where Jesus comes face to face with men who have demons. And the demons recognize he is the king of kings. He is the son of God. In fact, in Mark 5, we see this powerful interaction between a demon-possessed man and Jesus. The Bible tells us when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and knelt down before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, what do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? The demons recognized Paul because Paul had the seal of the Holy Spirit. He was united with Christ, but the demons did not recognize the sons of Sceva. The demons recognized these sons of Sceva were imposters. In chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, we saw Simeon, Simon the sorcerer, who wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit after he saw that the Holy Spirit was given by laying on of hands. Now we see these brothers who think they can command demons by simply using Jesus' name like a magic spell. It's beautiful how the sovereignty of God is on display right here. Because God allows this beat down so that he can differentiate between Paul, who was an authentic messenger of Christ, and the sons of Sceva, who are false imposters. The sons of Sceva might have been known all over Ephesus. People went all over looking for them to come do exorcism. But Paul was known. He was well known by the King of Kings. And this leads us to our second observation. We are well known, but we are not well known, but we are fully known. In the conversation between the demon-possessed man and the seven brothers, there's something that really stood out to me. You see, growing up in Kenya, we did not have time out for kids. Like, that's a foreign concept. So 
every time my mom would discipline me, she would ask me two questions. One, who are you? And then two, whose child are you? Because she did not want to be associated with a rebellious child. And let me tell you, any time I got a beat down, I deserved it. <laughs> the demon-possessed man asked the brothers, who are you? The answer to this question is extremely important. How we answer these questions makes an essential difference in our efforts to proclaim the gospel and also in our personal and corporate relationship with God. Who are you? How would you answer this question? Put yourself in their shoes, face-to-face with a demon-possessed man. Who are you? Would you present your accomplishments? Would you say you are what you do? What about the likes on your Instagram? Is that what you would put forward? The outfit that you have on? Would you say you are a Christian because you come to church? Or would you say you identify with Christ because you have been washed by the blood of the Lamb? Brothers and sisters, listen to this. We are who we are because of whose we are. Our identity as Christians is derived from the Lord. And he says to us, you are my children. In fact, look at what John says. He says, to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. We are in union with Christ. And because of that, we gain all the benefits of Christ. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. Christ is our deepest identity. And because of this truth, we can be hopeful, we can be assured, and we can have a holy expectation as we go with the gospel. God goes with us. Here's the thing. The enemy loves counterfeit, like the sons of Sceva, right? Instead of joy, he gives us momentary happiness. Instead of Love, he gives us lust. Instead of relationship with him, he keeps us busy with religious activity. All of us draw our attention, our identity from something. Who defines you? Who defines who you are? Are you going to get your identity from the almighty God or are you going to let the world define who you are? The sons of Sceva got a bit down because they were not identified with Christ. They knew the name of Jesus, the one Paul preaches. They had seen the working of the Holy Spirit, but they did not have an intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit. As we go with the gospel, we cannot afford to not be sure of our eternal identity in Christ. If you have repented, and believed in Jesus, Jesus alone for your salvation, listen to this, you are chosen by God. You are known by God. You are loved by God. You are declared righteous only in Jesus. You are freed from death. The bondage of sin is no longer your portion. You are adopted by the almighty God. Let that sink in. You are a child of God. You have been given the privilege of knowing God as your heavenly father. Unlike your physical father, your biological father, our God is so gracious and loving and merciful. And he is your father. 
This means that we can rejoice, we can suffer well, we are free from legalism and guilt, we are free to be generous and content, and as we are about to see next, we can be transparent and live righteously without fear of condemnation. Because all of you know, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 18. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. While many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them, and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated the value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. Notice here, the text says, believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. Those who are confessing their sins and burning the collection of magic books were believers. This leads us to our last point. Because we are empowered and we are fully known, we will bear fruit. There's no two way about it. If you are hidden in Christ, you find your identity in Christ alone, you're going to bear fruit. There is no way to, there's no two way about it. As we go with the gospel, empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we cling to the identity we have in Christ, I have no doubt we will see fruit in us and through us. The believers in Ephesus confessed their sins. They had disclosed their practices. They got rid of their idols. In fact, they burned their idols. They did not care that doing this would cost them. They had found a better treasure. And losing everything to gain this treasure was worth it. Do you remember that parable that Jesus told? He said there was a man who went and he found treasure. And once he had found that treasure, he went back home and sold everything he had. He was like, pants gone. My, my iMac gone. New iPhone gone. He put everything away. And then he went back to the field. He bought the field, dug up the treasure, and he gloried in it. Brothers and sisters, that is what we have found in Jesus. He is our ultimate treasure. And for him, we go back and we sell every single thing that we hold dear to our lives. And we say, Jesus is better. There is nothing else better. I know confessing sin can be challenging, mainly because we don't want people to look at us differently, but it is so good for the church and the watching world to see true confession and forgiveness of sins. It's a picture of the gospel, right? If we are honest, sometimes we find it hard to confess sins because we end up thinking we are the only ones who struggle with this, right? How many times have you done something and you felt like, no, 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 this is just me, no one else, those people at the church, they are, they are holy, they are way cleaner than I am, I feel dirty, and I cannot say what I did last night. Look at this. Many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. It doesn't say some. It wasn't the one dude who loved Harry Potter and somehow innocently found himself owning some few magic books. <laughs> Nothing against Harry Potter. It was many, many believers. What if today you and I decided 
We decided to talk to our brothers and sisters about the sin that clings so close to us. And we, we just prayed and sought the face of the Lord and embraced the forgiveness that comes from Christ. Maybe your confession, maybe my confession, is what will lead to someone else confessing. And how beautiful it's going to be to see brothers and sisters freed from shame and guilt because of this gracious gift that God has given us. This is part of why we encourage everyone to be part of a small group, a community group, because that's where you're known. It's a small setting. It's a small enough setting for you to feel a sense of authentic Christian relationship. And maybe your next step is to join a community group. Email Corey, C-O-R-I, at mercycharlotte.com. That was a little bit of an advertisement. All right. Please, do not walk alone. Listen to these words by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The isolated person is the more attractive. The the, the more isolated a person is, the more attractive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Now, here are a few principles to apply to avoid, to to help you in in confessing. Not to avoid confessing, but to help you in confessing. One, we're going to go through these real quick, okay? Are you with me? You got got your pen and your your pad to write on? All right, let's go. One, confess to God. He is the one most displeased by your sin. Two, confess to believers. Find a small group of believers you can walk with and mature Christians who will battle with you in prayer and hold you accountable. Three, confess your temptations. You see, the more you bring it to the open, the less power it has on you. Four, Confess quickly. The longer you wait, the harder, it is to, the harder it's going to be for you to confess. And five, confess honestly. Be truthful enough to expose the sin, but general enough not to cause your friends to be tempted. The Bible tells us if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, confession before salvation is for forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. After being saved, Christian confession is instead, like one author says it, more like the scraping off of barnacles off the body of a boat so it can keep moving freely. It's not what saves you. You've already been saved. Now, these believers in Ephesus did not just confess. They burned their magic books. The Greek word says they continued burning, which means there are some things we will have to burn and keep burning. This means confession has to become part of our Christian life, just something we keep doing. When the church in Ephesus seriously cleansed itself, some on the outside found it irresistible. Our text tells us, in this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. I know we want to see the word of the Lord spread and prevail. If confessing is what will make someone come into the fold, I know we will do that because that is what our Lord calls us into. So let's pray continually that the Lord would continue to make us worthy of the calling that he has called us. In conclusion, our Lord is committed to his redemptive mission. He is so committed to the point of coming as a man 
He lived a sinless life, enduring humiliation, beatings, and dying on the cross. He died the death that you and I deserved so that anyone who repents and believes in him alone can be saved. It is comforting to know that our God is with us as we embark on this mission. He puts it, he puts the mission in front of us, but he goes before us and he is with us and he will be after us. I mean, God used the teaching of Paul and his preaching ministry. He even used handkerchiefs and aprons. He used a beat down. He used confession of sins and burning of idols so that the message of the gospel can be heard by people who are far from him. Why would he not use you? If you're willing and faithful and available, he will use you. Second Chronicles 7, after Solomon had finished dedicating the temple to the Lord, it was a glorious temple. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. His presence was so glorious that even the priests were unable to enter the temple. Some of us read passages like that and we think, oh man, I wish I was there. And yet we have something even better. Look at this. You don't have to build a temple. The Lord has built his own temple. You are his temple. Not only that, you don't have to go and stand somewhere and look at the glory of the Lord upon a physical temple. He has promised the Holy Spirit to come and live in you. This is glorious. Do you get that? Like the priests looked at the temple and they were unable to go because of how glorious the glory of God was on the temple that Solomon built. And God has built you to be his temple. And you have the glory of God in you. Don't you think that's going to be attractive to people? As you walk around and they look at you and they say, oh, that's the temple of the Lord. Did you hear the word they just spoke? That's the temple of the Lord. That's what God is calling us to be. In our neighborhoods, are we taking the glory of the Lord? In our schools, are we taking the glory of the Lord? And not because we're creating it, but because he has already created it in us. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Charlotte, in London, in India, in Australia, in Noda, wherever you go. If you are yet to know the Lord Jesus, this Jesus that we speak of, he desires to make you his temple. And unlike Solomon, you do not have to build a physical temple so you can stop working on yourself. Okay? Let God make you and create you into a new creation. Unlike the sons of Sceva, you do not have to know the Jesus, the one that Paul preaches. You do not know, you do not have to know the Jesus your parents worship. Jesus, the one your friends worship. Jesus, the one you go to church and you look at the people as they worship him. You can know Jesus, the one who can save you today. If the Spirit of God is moving in you, convicting you of your need for sin, your need for salvation because of sin, we would love to talk to you right after the service. Or just talk to the person seated next to you. I'm about to make it awkward. Look at your neighbor. Say, hey, I'll walk outside with you if you ask me to. Please do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that you can use ordinary things like handkerchiefs and aprons to save people. And Lord, you chose us before the foundations of the world. And you put the spirit of God in us. Lord, you say that you give us spiritual gifts in the heavenly places. And Lord, you say that you present us in Christ as holy and blameless. Lord, would you remind us of the identity we find in you and help us, Lord, to walk in a manner that is worthy, the calling that you've put in front of us. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.